Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Olesa Pendak, the Chief Content Officer here at MindBodyGreen. I'm so happy to introduce you to Dr. Eileen Ruhoy. Eileen is a board-certified neurologist who practices integrative pediatric and adult neurology. She takes a holistic approach to her practice, including full neurological care with the addition of acupuncture, neural feedback, herbal and nutritional guidance, and much more. In this episode, Eileen and I discuss everything brain health, the gut-brain connection, how to ensure healthy brain function, as well as her personal journey with brain health. As a brain cancer survivor, Eileen knows exactly what it's like to face debilitating fear, especially when she looked at her own brain scans and knew exactly what they meant. She talks about why a life of obstacles is worth living and why she believes we should actually be thankful for our pain. Eileen is an inspiring doctor and human, and I'm excited for her to share her story and her advice. Dr. Ruhoy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Terrific. So let's start with your credentials because they're so interesting. You're a specialist in integrative pediatric and adult neurology in Seattle. So this means you practice full neurological care, but you also include acupuncture, neurofeedback, herbal and nutritional guidelines into your practice. So how did you wind up with this integrative approach to neurology? I think uh, I was always interested in integrative approach. So I had gotten my MD and then I pursued my PhD in environmental toxicology and it became clear to me that there's so much that affects us in our environment, whether it's our water or our food or our air. Um, After finishing your MD, how did you decide that you wanted to do even more I actually, education? <laughs> I had a daughter, and so I felt that I wanted to be home more at the time. Um, and so, uh, and I was always interested in the environment. I've, I've been sort of a hobby environmentalist at heart for most of my life, actually. Um, and so I decided to pursue a PhD at the time in environmental toxicology, which gave me a little more flexibility in my schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was very hard to do in the end and very stressful. It allowed me to be home a little bit more. But I was really happy I did it because I learned a great deal about what's in our environment. And it occurred to me that I think our health is very much dependent upon how we breathe or what we breathe and what we eat and how we and how and what we drink and um, where we live and how we live our lives. And so I always knew or I always had a sense that I wanted to incorporate all of that into my practice, but I wasn't really sure at the time how I would do so. So um, I did the Integrative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Arizona with Dr. Andrew Weil, and I learned all about integrative medicine practices. And I trained in neurology at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital, which is where I had the um, the great experience of, of training in both pediatric and adult neurology. 
And then I also uh, did a course for acupuncture for physicians so that you learn more medical acupuncture, which is slightly different than the Eastern approach. Um, and there are more medical indications for these acupuncture protocols. So I went for that course for physicians and became a certified acupuncturist. So I was able to, to use various skills that I had had um, to try to incorporate an integrative neurologic approach to patient care. I also had done a lot of herbal formulation courses outside of the Integrative Medicine Fellowship that allowed me also to understand more about plants because I mean, one of my passions is food is medicine and plants can be medicinal and they are medicinal. They've always been medicinal. So I, I guess I brought all of that together uh, when I opened up my clinic to try to offer this full breadth of, of neurologic treatment and management. At the time, was there anybody who was doing anything similar? I can't imagine that you could walk up to a neurology program and say, oh, I want to do this kind of integrative approach and here are all the tools I bring to it. Or is that really why you started your own practice? That is why I started my own practice. I will say that certainly um, people were more receptive to these kinds of, certainly things like herbs and some supplements. Um, we've known in neurology that certain supplements are very helpful for certain very common neurologic complaints and symptoms. Um, but no one was really sort of taking on that perhaps there's more or going into full depth. And um, so I opened up my own practice so that I can do so, so that I can pursue that and offer that to patients. It was hard to do in, in a more academic setting. Um, there aren't a lot of, you know, randomized control trials, which is what makes something considered evidence-based. So it was more of uh, just based on my experience and my training um, and my own learning and uh, my own instincts for patient care. And it's a true integrative approach, which is what I like to explain. It's not just herbs. Um, I definitely use you know pharmacologics when they're indicated and when they're necessary. And I try to add adjunctive therapies and more of the integrative modalities. And it was a few years ago that you actually turned a little bit in your practice and became a patient, not just a physician. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was actually, it was an interesting timing. So I was already planning to open up my clinic, but had not yet technically done so. But I had not been feeling well for a couple of years prior to this. And, you know, and I, I went to a lot of colleagues of mine and um, and everyone, you know, just thought that I was working too hard. I was too stressed. I, I knew too much, which is, you know, very common, with, you know, for doctors. We mm-hmm. do know a lot. And so we have we tend to have fears over symptoms sometimes. And so I believed it for a while. I thought I was working too hard and I was a little bit stressed and I was managing, you know, work and family and life. So I tried to manage that, but my symptoms progressed and got worse. And so I kept going to doctors and wasn't really getting answers. And so I actually asked a friend of mine who was an internist and to order me an MRI. And so I went for my MRI and I came out of the machine and the tech told me to go directly to the ER. It's like, you know, the game Monopoly, go directly to the jail. That's not <laughs> And I hear. said, why? And he said, I don't know. The radiologist didn't tell me. He just told me to tell you to go directly to the ER. And I said, you do know I'm a neurologist and I just had a brain MRI. This is, you know, not a good thing. Um, and he said, I'm sorry, but this is all I know. So I went to the ER and then they had the scan open on the laptop for me. And I saw, I had a seven centimeter tumor with a lot of sweating, swelling. So what happens is, is that the brain, we have what's called mass effect or midline shift. My one hemisphere was pushed over to the other side and pushed down. And so, um, the fact that I hadn't had any neurologic deficits on exam and the fact that I hadn't had a seizure is, is still remarkable to this day when I think about it. Um, but um, I was admitted immediately um, for brain surgery. And so there was a, uh, a resection that was done, a full resection, or so we thought. 
And um, I recovered very well from the surgery, um, but uh, a year later there was some recurrence, so then I underwent uh, brain radiation. And thus far, that seems to have done the job. So I'm, and this was, so the, the surgery, the diagnosis and surgery was in 2015, and then the radiation was December 2017. So, so far I'm doing well, and I have to say that I've actually never felt better. So when I compare it to how I felt prior to the diagnosis, it, it can sometimes make me, you know, regretful that I didn't force an MRI sooner. But I think things happen as they do in life, and fortunately, um, it happened in, in such a sequence that I'm here today, and you know, I was able to then pursue my clinic. And so it, it gave me this sense of e- even further motivation to open up my own private practice um, to really offer um, the full range of, of all that I know for patients and all that I had trained in and all that I had experienced. I felt like I could really bring that to my practice and care for patients on maybe a much more deeper level than I had previously. Um, and so, yeah, it gave me that extra, you know, oomph to go ahead and do it. So, uh, so yeah, and that's, that's what I've done. That's an incredibly remarkable story. Thank you. And that vision of you going into that room and seeing the laptop and Mm -hmm. and knowing exactly what you were looking at, whereas most patients would say, that looks like a scan. (laughs) Um, I mean, that must have been an incredibly profound moment to Uh, It was a terrifying moment. It was terrifying. Um, My husband had met me in the ER. He actually works in the hospital where I had gotten the MRI. So he came down to the ER and uh, we have a daughter and she was 11 years old at the time. And when I saw the MRI, it w- the swelling make, made it look like a different type of tumor, to be fair, which is a terminal diagnosis. So my initial thought was, was truly terrifying. And I basically dropped to the floor crying that, um, how was I going to tell her? I was going to leave her without a mother. And then they wanted to admit me right away, which they did. But first I had to talk to her. So I went home first and I actually wrote her a letter because I there was a 30% chance that I wouldn't make it out of surgery because of the size of the tumor and all of the swelling. Um, so I, I wrote her a letter in case I didn't make it out because there was so much that I wanted to teach her in life that I feared I would not have that chance to do so. And I wrote her this long letter that she did not want to read. <laughs> and uh, and she didn't read it, actually. And clearly, I made it out of surgery, and I, I did well. Um, but then she was bat mitzvah a couple of years later. And so I read it at the bat mitzvah. And uh, it was a truly emotional moment. And we still have that letter. We actually sort of framed it. <laughs> and it was all these life lessons that I think, you know, as any mother would know, you want to be able to pass on to your children, especially a daughter, uh, about growing up as, as a woman in this world. Um, uh, it was a very poignant moment, uh, absolutely. So yes, it was a very terrifying, but my daughter sort of gave me things to do to sort of help distract me from my fear um, and my and my and my anxiety over what's about to happen. And then I went back to the hospital and was admitted, had an angiogram, had my meningeal uh, middle meningeal artery cauterized because it was feeding the beast. And then I had the surgery, and and the rest is history, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> well, thank goodness you came out the other side. Yes, thank goodness is right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how this affects your dealing with patients and your relationship with your patients as a physician. I can imagine that you can put yourself in their shoes very easily and very quickly. I do. Absolutely. I absolutely do. I, I I had complained of vague symptoms, and no one really knew what to do with it at the time, again, because my exam was normal. And so I tend to believe everything that someone tells me until proven otherwise, and that's sort of the approach I take. Like, I believe that they're having these symptoms, and I believe that there's an impact on their life. And 
where that symptom comes from may or may not matter at that moment, but the fact that I'm believing them uh, and, and I'm going to act to try to find out why they're having this symptom, um, I think really helps them believe that I'm, I'm a partner in, in their journey, actually. And, you know, I always sort of see each patient as on their own life journey, and their journey is being disrupted by whatever is happening to their body, to their brain, to their mind, their soul, their spirit. And that has greater impacts, as we know, than just sort of that pain or that other particular symptom. It, it has an impact in how they engage in life and how they interact with their family and how they interact on their job, how they interact with their friends, their social engagements, their their zest for life, you know, their enjoyment in life. Um, and so I just sort of take on all that they're giving me, I guess, is what I, is what how I describe it. I, I sort of take it on me, and I work to help them find out how we can both help them heal. And I think that my experience has given me some perspective to do that, um, perhaps better um, than I had prior to my experience. And what kind of patients do you see now? What kinds of issues are people coming to you with? Uh, all kinds, <laughs> to be fair. Um, I definitely see a lot of uh, bread and butter neurology, but I also have um, quite a population. And what does that mean, bread and butter neurology? Bread and, you know, uh, migraines and headaches and neuropathy and seizures, uh, dizziness. Um, so I, I definitely see uh, a lot of that. But I also have a fair share of uh, chronic illness, you know, patients who have just been sick a real long time and don't really know why. And that's where my environmental training comes into into role sometimes is because then you have to sort of look further. You know, I, labs are normal, testing can be normal. Um, so, you know, then I really focus in on, okay, well, what are you eating on a daily basis? How are you moving on a daily basis? What are your stress stressors in life? What, what are you exposed to? Um, you know, who do you interact with on a regular basis? And how is this affecting you? And, and you know, oftentimes you get a history of whether it's trauma, whether that's physical or emotional or uh, mental, um, or you get a, a history of infections, you get a history of um, a metabolic exposure, you know, that they had food poisonings, you know, several bouts of it, or um, they've had a long history of, the, of metabolic disorders, like, you know, things such as, you know, diabetes, for example, that have made some changes in their physiology that over time, when not properly cared for, um, can create other kinds of symptoms and other kinds of presentations. So I, I definitely look more towards uh, their background and more towards their history for answers as to what's happening now. And uh, the way we do that is is really multifactorial. I mean, you know, we start with investigations in terms of even how their gut is working and um, how their brain is working and how their autonomic nervous system is working. And and um, and we start with what we find out there, and then we go back towards, like like I said, what their histories are. You know, what did they experience as a childhood? Even It even goes back as far as that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that my training in pediatric and adult neurology has given me perspective in terms of what can happen in childhood in terms of neurologic illnesses um, that may present later in life or may set you up for things in later in life uh, you know so I, I think that perspective is comes into play fairly often as well when I hear about their childhoods or you know their family history and things of that nature and is that chemical things that are happening in their environment or things that are happening more on an emotional level like trauma yeah absolutely I mean we do know that emotional trauma has physiologic effects. I mean, that is, is clear. Um, sometimes how and to what extent can be challenging to really discern. But we, we definitely learn about a lot of trauma. You know, PTSD actually has changes in the brain. And, and while we're not 
experts as neurologists to necessarily, you know, be the primary managers of that. I have lots of people that I refer to for that. There's lots of different types of treatments, and we become more um, supportive care for sure, in terms of, I always say things trigger other things. I mean, even my patients who've had chronic illnesses or chronic infections, for example, oftentimes it's not the trigger, not the initial trigger. It's what's happened thereafter, what this what this ultimately led to. And it could be in the autoimmune realm quite often. You know, for example, infections are known to cause autoimmune disorders. In neurology, there are several examples of that. Post-viral and post-bacterial infections can have a neurologic syndrome, and it's no longer an, uh, an acute or active infection. It's really what that infection triggered. And stress and trauma can do the same thing. It triggers other things. And so while I may not be the right provider to treat that triggering factor, whether it's an infection or whether it's trauma or whether it's a, a metabolic illness, I, I oftentimes what, it, what the sequelae is neurologic in its nature. And I can help rein that back in. So for example, in the forms of post-infectious kinds of problems, I mean, treating the infection is no longer the answer, right? Treating what that infection has triggered is now the answer. And that is usually in the ne- neurology realm. So you mentioned several things that affect the brain, and those include the water that we drink and the um, food that we eat and all of these other more lifestyle things that we're doing all the time every day. I'm curious about what are the key things that you think are affecting our brain that people might not be aware of? So I think it's important to recognize uh, that our brain is a circadian organ. So it thrives on that circadian rhythm. And it's the whole reason why, for example, newborns, you know, they thrive when they're put on routine, right? That's what moms do. We put them on their sleep schedule and their feeding schedule. And it's because we are circadian beings and we're technically meant to, you know, rise with the sun, go sleep with with the sun and do regular meals and so on. But it's very hard to simulate that in modern day, certainly in Seattle, you know, we're, you know, in the middle of the winter, it's dark at 3 p.m. So clearly, we're not going to sleep with the sun. But the best that we can simulate that, the better off we'll be. So things that are important to respect that circadian rhythm of our brain are things such as sleep. So I'm always, you know, preaching sleep hygiene, you know, going to bed at the same time each night and waking up at the same time each morning, um, a sleep routine. So in other words, going in, getting in preparation for sleep is super important because that sort of tells the body that it's almost time for sleep. Um, I always talk about even in the morning, you know, the sun is at a particular angle in the morning. And so the eyes, which is the windows to the brain, and some say the, to the soul, um, will pick up that particular angle of the sun and will sort of, it's a message to the brain that this is the morning time. This is a brand new day. Because the daytime is part of the circadian rhythm, right? The day and, and the night cycles. And so getting outdoors, even for 20 minutes outside in the daylight for early in the morning, you know, before around 10 a.m. is what I always, you know, recommend um, just for a so brief period of time. blackout curtains then and kind of creating a really controlled yeah. environment? Or do you think that you should sort of let your windows open and rise with the sun? I think natural light is the most important thing. And I think blackout lights when it's, when it's, dark when it's light late so like in Seattle in the summer as I, I spoke about the winter but certainly in Seattle it's you know still light out at 11 p.m. basically so I think when you live in certain in certain geographic areas where you know the the darkness and the lightness don't really coincide I think it's a little bit more challenging um, 
so yes, the the proper use of blackout shades and and opening up those shades at certain times in the morning, um, if you can, are, are are important to help. Again, the best that you know, I always say baby steps, right? This isn't like absolute. We do the best we can in our in this day and age, um, but the best that we can do to simulate this, I think, is 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 the healthiest that we can be. And it goes for rituals as well during the day. So you know, exercise at the same time each day, and if you're a morning person, exercise in the morning. If you're an evening person, exercise in the evening. Even even meals, you know, and I'm a, I'm, I'm an advocate for intermittent fasting, but, you know, you do that regularly. So in a, in a, in a form of ritual, right? So if you don't eat until 11 a.m. each morning, then maintain that schedule so that the body knows at 11 a.m. it gets its nourishment. So those kinds of things that we can set up, and I admittedly, this is difficult to do on a regular basis. I get it, and I don't want to be a party pooper for anyone. Uh, but the more that we can pretend that we're on some sort of rhythm, and if we get off that rhythm just to get right back on on it. It's like falling off the horse or falling off the bicycle, right? You get right back on. And it's the same when we're dealing with our health. Um, because the more we do for ourselves, the better we'll feel in the in the long run. And so it's a circadian organ, the, the brain. So sleep and meals. And what actually happens to your brain while you sleep? So while our brain sleeps is when it replenishes itself and when it restores itself. And um, we know a lot more about the lymphatic system now, right, which is the lymphatic system of the brain, right? So we have our obviously our lymphatic system through our bodies, and we never really understood how the brain itself rid itself of, of debris, of cellular debris or, or, or metabolic byproducts. And now we know about the, the lymphatic system, which is an anatomical physiologic system of itself. And we know that it's most active during sleep. And so restorative sleep allows our brain to get rid of these waste byproducts as well as cellular debris and sort of clear inflammatory byproducts and inflammatory mediators to sort of help set up for healing. And so a lot of healing takes place. And actually, you know, we, we've long known that, for example, children have growth spurts while they sleep. Um, we also know that if you learn something new today, it doesn't matter how well you slept the night before, it matters how well you sleep tonight, right? So to cement that new lesson that you've learned or that new memory, um, you have to have really good restorative sleep that night thereafter, not the night before. So we know that, that sleep is truly important for um, continued clarity, continued cognition, attention and focus. And the way and the best way to do that that we can do naturally, obviously, is this sleep hygiene that I talk about um, fairly often, you know, as opposed to I think, you know, there's an overuse of some sleep medications these days. But there's a lot that we can certainly do naturally to help ourselves. And how much is poor sleep associated with negative consequences? Poor sleep is associated with cognitive decline. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's definitely been proven to be associated with cognitive decline. It's been proven to be associated with um, risk for things like strokes. And um, poor sleep is associated with increased frequency of headaches. Um, We know that for some migraineurs, for example, they feel better when they fall asleep. They wake up feeling brand new. Um, so poor sleep is associated with several disorders of the brain, some of which can potentially be progressive if poor sleep persists, right? So, you know, I, I never like to scare anyone to, you know, a couple of nights of poor sleep here and there. I think we all have them for various reasons, and that's not shown to have any, you know, long-term side effect. But if there is consistent 
poor sleep, if there's consistent insomnia, consistent difficulty in falling asleep or staying asleep, then I definitely recommend seeking some guidance, some care, because that could prove to be detrimental to your brain health, certainly later in life. I think it's important that when we're young, we feel like, oh, nothing's going to affect us. You know, I'm going to live forever and I'm going to feel this great forever. And and we know that's not true. I think we all know that's not true on, on some level. Um, and But as we get older, understand that our resilience and our reserve actually goes down. So it's even that much more important that we maintain those good sleep hygiene practices and those good brain health practices overall, um, just to continue to support our body. And you also mentioned food. Now, I know that there has been so much connection now between the gut and the brain. And I'm curious about what kinds of food you think are really feeding our brains are the best for brains and also are the worst for brains. So I always talk about foods being anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory, and I think every meal is a is a time for a decision, right? To decision, are you going to eat something that's anti-inflammatory? Are you going to eat something that's pro-inflammatory? I recognize there's a lot of dietary guidance out there, and you know, and I so I always like to sort of say that this is certainly my opinion, but there's a lot of research to support that um, plant-based foods are very anti-inflammatory and are likely all we should be eating, really. And so I do advocate for a plant-based diet. I have patients who tell me, though, that they feel worse when they don't have a form of animal protein. And I say, okay, because I do think that to some extent we are all different and our physiology is different. Our backgrounds are different in how we were raised in terms of what we were fed early on. Um, our ancestries are different. Um, but I think that in terms of the human species, the Homo sapiens, it seems clear that we ultimately thrive and flourish on plant-based foods. Um, and those are anti-inflammatory. And obviously, I think the pro-inflammatory foods, I think for the most part, everyone would agree on. You know, And I always say baby steps with patients who are not used to eating an anti-inflammatory diet. I always, you know, no processed foods, no sugar, and no dairy. You know, these are known to be very, very pro-inflammatory. So if I start there and they're compliant with that, then I'm I'm generally a happy doctor. <laughs> um, but most of my patients are actually motivated to take it the next steps because they realize how much better they feel from even taking those few steps. But I think that uh, the research is actually fairly clear that plant-based foods will keep us healthy and happy, actually, because they've been associated with improved mood um, for a long time to come. And then what about herbs and supplements? I definitely support... Um, the use of pharmacologics with some herbs. I Sometimes I will just use herbal formulations, usually um, based on a patient's request, but I will sometimes suggest that if I think it's appropriate and indicated. Um, and then there are some supplements that have been, you know, again, in conventional medicine, I mean, we know, for example, magnesium helps migraineurs. So it's, you know, it's not out of the box so much to, to think that supplements can be helpful. But the question, of course, is always which supplements, how many supplements. I always talk about targeted use of supplements. I think that that's appropriate. So, for example, with the migraineurs, you know, clearly I use magnesium and I use riboflavin and I use boswellia, which is a very favorite compound of mine, which is um, has been shown to be uh, anti-inflammatory for the brain. I try not to use more than four or five, to be fair, because otherwise, you know, people are swallowing a bunch of pills and it's not real clear as to what's working, what's not working. Um, but I do think there's an appropriate place for supplements. I mean, some of them have a great benefit to our health. I often say where you where you can get it as a whole food source, you should do so. Like for example, turmeric, highly antioxidant, highly anti-inflammatory. I love it. Um, and you could buy it in capsule. You can even buy it in tincture form, but you could also buy the root and juice it. And I basically make my patients buy juicers and there's, you know, <laughs> inexpensive ones on the market. Um, because I honestly think that, um, 
to juice the root, you get way more of the compound and it's way more bioavailable and has that great anti-inflammatory effect more so than you can get from the supplements. But supplements definitely have a role and, and some actually have great, great responses to certain supplements, especially for brain health. You've mentioned intermittent fasting and how that is a powerful tool that you use and that you recommend. Yes. Um, what type of intermittent fasting do you recommend? Do you recommend it to everybody? I do recommend it to everyone for the most part, but not in the, in the same, you know, I modify it, right? So I think that if you're going to do it, do it regularly because it speaks to that rhythm and routine that I had mentioned. Because uh, your body does get used to it. It sort of learns not to expect food at 8 a.m. if you generally don't eat until 11 a.m. And so you don't feel that hunger that you might when you first start. You know, I think some patients, intermittent fasting is so foreign to them that I'm, you know, again, let's see how we can do this. Can you just not eat for the first two hours in the morning if they're usually eating at 8 a.m. when they wake up? Can you wait an hour? You know, so we start again, baby steps is what I expect. I don't expect miraculous movements overnight from patients. Um, but then I, you know, I, I do prefer sort of the 16-8 kind of approach where, you know, you're fasting for 16 hours and that includes the overnight fast. So it sounds a little scary, I think, to a lot of people, 16 hours, but, you know, I always remind them, well, you're sleeping for some of it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the eight hour window. And some of my patients are really motivated to, you know, take it even further to the 18-6, but I think 16-8 is fine. And then, you know, and then when you do eat, uh, obviously to try to choose the appropriate foods, although it, it doesn't always happen. But the I think what's so effective about intermittent fasting, and some prefer to call it as intermittent eating, which is <laughs> perfectly fine, um, is that it diverts energy. So when we eat, energy is diverted to our GI tract to metabolize and absorb and digest and, and so on for all those functions that take on. So you can even eat the healthiest snack in the world, but any, any presence of food substance in our stomachs requires energy and that energy requires blood flow so blood flow is diverted when that blood can be elsewhere doing other thing things such as healing the brain which of course is my focus but you know it can be doing lots of, lots of other things as well and so it does give the body a little bit of a break you know i mean i think that we probably eat too often in this country i you know i often you know go to conferences and it's like they feed us every 2 3 hours is like a snack bar and i think well we can get through a couple of hours of lecture <laughs> without more food we're fine, you know, but I, so I think to be cognizant of not continuously putting food into our systems is actually an important part of maintaining our health and our brain health. One thing we haven't talked about yet is movement, but obviously that is such a key piece of this too. What type of movement do you think is ideal for brain health? What do you recommend? Uh, any movement that you'll do regularly, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have to be, you know, climbing Mount Everest. Um, I often suggest just going for walks every day if that is what suits you. Um, certainly being outdoors. Being, is it important to get your heart rate up? Yes. Is it important to break a sweat? Absolutely. But, you know, I've uh, you, when some people have not exercised regularly, obviously, or they have certain medical illnesses that might, you know, be dangerous in terms of like safety for them to run or to do any kind of excessive exercise, we take it slow. Um, so even going for walks so, or, you know, a fast paced walk, moving your arms can get your heart rate up high. Being outdoors, we know, being amongst nature improves the brain health. It reduces anxiety. It reduces depression. Um, it definitely improves mood disorders. It actually allows for clarity and better 
thought process. So um, I often say if you can do an exercise outdoors, then do it. But I also am a big fan of yoga. I think yoga is meditative. Um, it actually brings down um, all of the hyper excitability that we tend to sort of walk around with in our central nervous system just from modern day life. Um, yoga is sort of a respite from that. And I, I love yoga. I do it regularly. I'm a runner, so I really enjoy uh, running. Um, but then I like to balance it with yoga practice. And, you know, but I even, you know, for my patients who have neurodegenerative disorders, for example, I mean, Tai Chi has been proven to be remarkable for these patients. It improves their balance. It improves their gait. I Then they can ambulate with more safety. They don't fall as often, but they also can better sort of grasp the idea that they have a neurodegenerative disorder and they seem less depressed over it and less um, anxious. Um, and their family members, their caregivers also have have that secondary benefit of sort of an improved mood in, in the patient. So I do think that any form of movement, and I recommend it daily, you know, this idea of just, oh, just exercise two, three times a week. I think, again, if you if that's all you can do, then I, that's perfectly fine. But our bodies are meant to move. I mean, we have all these muscles and ligaments and tendons and vessels that feed us, you know, because we're meant to move, we're not meant to be sedentary. And so any way we can move on a daily basis, we should move. And, and I, I, I'm definitely a huge proponent of that. I'm fairly passionate about that. Anxiety has become a major condition of our time, so I'd love to touch on that briefly. Um, what are we doing to cause it, in your view, and what can we do to help it? <laughs> That's a big question. What are we doing to cause it? I mean, I feel like walking outside on the street creates anxiety, so it could be as simple as that. Um, I think that there's a good level and a bad level of anxiety. You know, good level of anxiety allows you to get stuff done, right? If you're not anxious over getting something completed, then what's your motivation to really get it completed? I think that that level, and maybe it's the wrong word to call it anxiety then, but we refer to it as that. I have such anxiety, I'm not going to complete this project. And maybe that's what gets you to complete the project. And maybe that's what gets you to do it well. So there's a, a certain type of anxiety that sort of helps you just get stuff done in this world and helps you to continue to succeed and, and, and gain accomplishments. Um, but then there's the bad level of anxiety or the bad type of anxiety, I should say, which, which definitely impairs that. So it makes you frozen. It makes you feel like you're paralyzed, that you're so fearful of not doing something well that you just don't do it at all. And that is an unhealthy form of anxiety. And I think that that comes from a a lot of different things. And I think that to find the source of that is, is challenging and hard. Um, and I don't know if anyone can do so easily without, you know, long-term therapy, really like talk therapy to sort of talk through things in your background that sort of led you to this place to fear so much that you become paralyzed. But I do think that, um, Sometimes the more we do and the more we see that we're more competent than maybe we fear and the more we just take risks and recognize that the world won't end if we don't succeed or if we don't do a great job, the less we'll suffer from that paralyzing fear. And so I'm often saying, just give it a try or, you know, take half that job and just do half. See what happens, you know, fear not what others think of you, just go for it. And then I incorporate all of my health and, and wellness because I do believe that if our bodies and brains are in a good place, I think that we're better apt to struggle with this more successfully. And again, you know, outside of nature, movement every day, meditation has proven. Again, there have been studies that have shown that if you take 
people who never meditated before and you teach them to meditate and you have them meditate every day for six weeks. They did pre and post MRIs and they showed, first of all, that the, that parts of their brain, specifically in the temporal lobe area, actually um, seemed to have more volume to it. So it improved in its size, in other words. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of our brain that manages, for example, our memories. But also with surveys, they that's have amazing. shown, it is amazing. Size and, and there's actual science behind wow. it. And it, they've also done surveys with these patients and they report I mean, not 100%, but a great percentage of them that they have a a reduction in their anxiety, they have a reduction in their depressed mood, or I should call it sadness, because it wasn't necessarily clinical depression, but they definitely had more motivation. They felt more um, strength to pursue, you know, a task of sort. They were able to focus and concentrate more on that task, which is super important, of course, because a lot of people have difficulty time focusing. There are so many distractions in our world, right? But this, this meditative practice actually helped to focus in on that task and get it done. And so I think, you know, if we do all of that for ourselves, then that anxiety, when it starts to crop up on us, then we could better sort of you know, confront it head on and say, no, I can do this. And that's what I, I hope to help people do over time. You've mentioned treating a lot of patients who struggle with migraines. This is something that comes up a lot in our world. Can you tell us a little bit about what your migraine protocol is, or if there are a few things that patients are out there that are struggling and might not be able to come and see you, but what you would advise um, in terms of a treatment plan or in terms of things to look at that they might not have considered or to talk to a doctor about? Sure. I mean, migraines is a very common complaint um, and obviously a very debilitating complaint. It really interferes in quality of life for many people who have chronic migraines. And we know more and more about migraines you know, every month it seems, and we did previously. Um, and we've had, we have new medications on the market that seems to help those who didn't respond to the medications we had previously. I do recommend, obviously, they should see a neurologist um, because the proper workup should be done. I, you know, one of my symptoms before my diagnosis was I was actually having increased migraines. But because I had had a history of migraines, you know, everyone just sort of thought, well, because of stress, you have increased migraines. So I to, I want to be sure that everyone at least gets an appropriate evaluation um, if they have chronic migraines, certainly. Um, but beyond that, there's a lot of great medications, but there's also a lot that we can do in the lifestyle, right? So sleep is super important. Proper sleep hygiene has been known to help migraines. There are certain food triggers for some people, not for all. Uh, we know that there are common food triggers so that we recommend avoiding things such as red wine and even deli meats have been known to trigger migraines. Chocolates can trigger migraines. Um, We do know that magnesium deficiency seems to be associated with migraines. So the supplements, of course, are magnesium and B2. And I also add boswellia and CoQ10 often. Um, I think that uh, regular meals, uh, again, the routine is is helpful for migraineurs as well. Acupuncture has been very helpful. I think that um, meditation is helpful. I think yoga is helpful. Regular movement is helpful. So we devise an entire integrative kind of approach for migraines. In my clinic, obviously, we have a a headache specialist. So she does an entire questionnaire and really goes into maybe where this patient is sitting. And to be sure that it's a migraine diagnosis also, by the way, because there are other primary headache disorders. So if it's not a migraine, it won't necessarily respond to migraine treatment. So that's important to sort of be evaluated. What do you think is most exciting right now in the field of neurology? What gets you excited? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I think everything gets me excited these days about neurology because I think the brain is that final frontier. I think when we're all 
we're so you know vested in why the brain does what it does and um, how best we can help support a brain. You know, I used to when I was going through my own challenges. You know, I remember thinking to myself, you know, my this is my brain. I mean, my brain. I mean, who am I without my brain? It's it's who we are. It's how we think, how we behave, our emotions, you know, our motivation, our executive function. We make decisions. How we feel towards others and towards the world and you know it's it's who we are and so I, I feel so strongly that neurology is is finally coming on board with we have to understand the brain more and more and we have to know how better we can help it and so what's exciting about neurology right now is that we're doing so there are more and more neuroscience type studies that are coming out that are showing how the different regions of the brain that you know we used to think you know each region had its own function we now know there is a lot of intercommunication um, they all sort of work hand in hand uh, they recruit each other when they need each other and so understanding the complexities of the transmission and the communication between the different regions and the different cells of the brain is truly what's exciting. And I think that the I think the horizon is that we're going to have more and more understanding to allow us to better offer and treat patients with any neurologic disease or neurologic treatment. And that is exciting for me. Um, and I'm super just I'm just proud to be a neurologist. I'm proud to be part of the neurologic world. And my colleagues are feel the same way. And it's, you know, we're just excited about what's to come in neurology. I think that part of the rise of the interest in the brain is because of the rise of conditions like Alzheimer's um, mm-hmm. and other brain disorders. And um, I think it's renewed people's interest in the brain and in wanting to protect their brain. I'm curious about what you think about the rise of these conditions and what you think might be causing it and what could potentially prevent it. There definitely is a rise of diagnoses of neurodegenerative disorders, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis and a lot of the dementia-type syndromes, and that is terrifying for a lot of people. In fact, we see quite a few people, speaking back about the patients that I see, who are completely healthy, but for whatever reason, they saw their parents you know, suffer from dementia. They are very much inter- interested in preventing that from happening to them. And yes, people fear losing their cognition, and it's because it's terrifying, because again, it's our brain. And so I think that we know now that there are things out there in our environment that um, we're exposed to that are affecting our physiology to the point where they are affecting our brain. And we now know of the gut-brain connection, of course. And so it's reasonable to think that it starts perhaps in the gut. And because of the, you know, we've always known about the enteric nervous system. I mean, that's been long understood by um, doctors. And we did know that there was communication with the central nervous system as well as the peripheral nervous system. Um, So they all interplay. But I think that the effect of the gut health itself from exposures, whether that's food, water, air, stress, because stress will release certain hormones and transmitters that can affect the milieu of the gut, um, which then affects how the enteric nervous system speaks to the central nervous system. Uh, I think we have a better understanding now than we ever did before, but we still don't understand a whole lot. Um, I think that that is showing that that it's very reasonable to think that there are things that we can do to prevent or minimize uh, the decline of our cognitive health. Um, And what that is can sometimes be hard and it can be difficult and it might be different for for each person. Um, It might be different for each community, for example, because communities are exposed to different things, whether you're in an urban landscape or a rural landscape or a suburban landscape, Um, whether you travel a lot even, you know, which you should, I'm not against travel, Mm -hmm. but if you travel a lot, you're exposed to different things. Um, So the answer is likely different for different pockets of the population, but there's an answer. And what we're starting to find is some things seem to be part of the answer. 
answer. We definitely don't know the whole answer yet. And I, you know, there's no way to say that this particular program or protocol will guarantee you good cognitive health for the rest of your life. But we know that there are parts of the answer. And the parts of the answer are things that are actually, uh, some of which we've talked about, of what we do in our own lives. So things that we have control of, right? So you don't necessarily need a doctor. You don't necessarily need a neurologist. We have control in our own lives of, of doing certain things. Um, but I think that uh, a neurologist can certainly help guide in a little bit more in-depth way, understanding the physiology and the anatomy of the brain um, can help to sort of, you know, tailor the approach to minimizing the exposure, the effects of the exposures on our brain. But yes, we know that there are things that are affecting our gut and then thereby affecting our brain, and some things directly affect our brain. So that is what we have to work towards minimizing, and, and how we do that is multifactorial, sometimes hard, but sometimes easy. Because of your background um, in the environmental toxicology, I'm curious about if there is anything that you see happening all the time in our environment that you know is affecting our brain that you think people aren't aware of as they should be. When I was doing my dissertation, I worked with the EPA and contracting yeah. EPA, so I learned a lot more than I really wanted to know. <laughs> um, specifically, my dissertation and my area of focus were pharmaceutical residues in our water, mm -hmm. and there are quite a bit. <laughs> so um, I am a big proponent of filtered water uh, because I found that there were other things in our water as well. And first so. of all, throw your medications away properly. Right? Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> so I was part of that movement, actually, of disposal of medications, um, of how to properly dispose. I worked with the White House's arm of um, disposal disposal of, of, of controlled substances and because uh, that was found in our waters and then I worked with um, local um, districts in terms of their law enforcement and pharmacies that had to dispose of other medications so now that's obviously you can dispose of your medications properly there are take backs that go across the country now um, because people were just obviously dumping them into the water and there were certainly a lot of these residues found and you know decades of exposure to even minute amounts of a variety of medications is obviously not healthy, um, and, but other things are found in the in the water as well. So I'm a big fan of filtered water, and uh, I, you know, we use what kind of filtration do you think is necessary? Um, as great filtration as you get. I, I'm a fan of clearly filtered filters. Um, we have one in our clinic, and uh, I recommend it to patients. It, it has a great technology which filters out most of everything, and. Um, so I, you know, clean water, filtered water, alkaline water seems to be um, uh, healthier because some studies have shown that it doesn't allow for certain things to accumulate as easily, and it certainly seems to be easier and and kinder to our body. Um, so definitely, so because my dissertation was focused on water, I'm constantly preaching clean water. But uh, and that's also why I speak to you know fish, we should recognize that our fish swim in our water and they bioaccumulate all the toxins in our, wa in our water. And so, you know, I always sort of say, try to be judicious about the fish consumption as well. Um, but I also learned about uh, particulate matter in the air. And I think that there are a lot of things that are in our air that we are not meant to breathe in. And, uh, you know, and again, it's, you know, if we lived a short lifespan, would it have that great of effect? I'm not sure of that answer, but I know that we live long lifespans now, as we should, uh, and we're breathing in all of this stuff. And then as we get older and we have this lower reserve and resiliency that I referred to earlier, and our bodies are constantly being exposed to particulate matter of certain chemicals that are released from industry and from production of certain um, and manufacture of certain products, um, then that over time is very inflammatory to our system and ultimately to our central nervous system. And then there are, of course, all of the, inf the infections that we are exposed to 
that we're learning more and more about. And then um, they too have... An, For the particulate, is there anything that you can do? Um, I mean, I'm assuming try not to live right next to a factory right. or something like <laughs> exactly. that. But um, do you think that air purifiers are going to help with, with a problem that massive? I, I don't think that they're going to do the complete job. I think that they will, again, as much as we can do to help. So when you're exposed to something, the first step is to remove yourself from the exposure. So, you know, patients come to me are concerned about mold in their home. And so they they either clean out their homes or they move from their homes. Uh, moving, leaving your, moving yourself out of the exposure is the best thing that you can do initially. Um, but thereafter, you know, things that are in our air, how are we going to remove that? So yes, you try not to live right next to sources of these particulate matters, um, which is sometimes easy, but sometimes hard. I mean, and it does speak to socioeconomic concerns that we have in this country. So none of these are easy answers. I think that there's an, an infrastructure of our country that sort of needs to be addressed first and foremost to allow for our entire population to be healthier. And that's a, that's a hard question. That's a big question to answer um, because we all deserve good health and we all deserve clean air, right? And we all, don't all get it. And so, and I fear that that's probably another topic and outside of the scope of our conversation, but something that I'm definitely passionate about. Um, but yeah, the best that we can do, you know, so air, air filtration when you can, um, also recognize that sometimes in exposure, it's, so you can remove yourself from the exposure, you can minimize the exposure, but that exposure might have triggered something that's already now in play in your body. And let's say it's in regards to cognition, let's say it is the accumulation of abnormal proteins that we know happens in some of the neurodegenerative diseases or inflammation that's sort of destroying or damaging the neurons or the, the other cells of our brain and our central nervous system. There are other things that we can do to combat it. So while it's not necessarily, you know, limiting or completely removing the exposure, we can still do things to combat it. And that's where, you know, these approaches to prevention of cognitive decline come in, is that it's an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, you know, exposures create free radicals, right? It's this inflammatory response that happens from these exposures. It creates free radicals that's creating damage, um, as well as lots of other inflammatory mediators that are released. So we could do things about that, right? We may not be able to clean the entire air in our country, but we can do things to combat what that dirty air <laughs> is doing to our body physio physiologically. And I think it's yet to show whether that will ultimately, you know, prevent cognitive decline. I don't think we really know that. I think it's all theoretical, but we do know that certain measures that we take reduce inflammation. We know that. So I think it's important. I would say imperative that we all do that because it's it's a matter of our brains at risk. One of the things that you have said is that you tell patients that you should always thank your pain. I think this is probably <laughs> something that's difficult for patients who are struggling to hear, but um an important part of the way that you approach your practice and the way that um that, that you approach pain and, and the way that you approach patients. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. I think pain is part of life. I think to expect to live a life without pain um, is unrealistic. I, you know, and that pain can be obviously physical. It could be emotional, um, but pain is important because pain is our body's sign that something's amiss, that something's off balance, that something is wrong, that uh, that it, and something needs to be acknowledged, confronted, and addressed. And if it's pain because you fell on your elbow and your elbow hurts now, well, that means you need to give some TLC to your elbow, right? So I think that's the obvious example. But I think some deeper pain can present as physical pain, but it may not be from physical pain. I think that some 
diseases when they first start sort of present as pain. And so sometimes that pain will let you know to go seek care. And so someone can do an evaluation and maybe find the source of that pain, um, so better treat. But I, I think pain is what leads you down a road of, of care and healing um, and perhaps optimal wellness, or at least perhaps um, a point in life where you can become a little bit more introspective and a little bit more maybe selfish, quite frankly, because we all try to do for others as well, and sort of turn inward and see, okay, my body's telling me something and I need to know what that is. And when I find out what that is, I'll, I'll know what to do about it. And when I, when I do something about it, I'll come out the other side and, and be different, be a different person, or at least have a different perspective. And so I always tell patients that, you know, the pain while uncomfortable and maybe impairing your life or impacting quality of life, ultimately thank it because it did lead you to a turning point in your life. I certainly thank what I'd gone through. Um, I sort of feel like my experience changed who I was as a person, not only as a doctor, but as a person. I feel that I am better able to bear witness to others' pain. And even if I'm not behaving as a doctor, even if I'm just behaving as a human, I'm bearing witness to the turning points of other people's lives. And, and I, I, I relish that role because I think it's an important part of life. So yes, we, we thank our pain. We're all in this together. And I think that the more we band together and hold on to one another and rely on, on one another and look towards one another, I think that we will all get through our pain to some extent and get to a, a, the other side. What gets you excited in the morning? Oh. <laughs> um, my daughter, definitely seeing her in the morning, uh, going to work and seeing my colleagues and seeing my patients and um, my husband, of course. Um, I don't know. I think living each day, I, I find the mornings to be rejuvenating. I mean, I, I know when I, when I go to sleep at night, I usually, as I'm falling asleep, I usually am, I take a deep breath and I think, okay, another day done. All my loved ones are in bed, asleep. Everyone is good. Um, I took care of the people I had to take care of that day. And then I wake up in the morning and I feel like I could do it all over again. And, um, and, and that's what gets me out of bed, actually. It's what gets me excited. And I just, I look forward to each day. What keeps you up at night? Uh, <laughs> uh, what keeps me up at night is when I have done something that I thought was the right thing but was not the right thing. Um, when I've made a mistake, it will keep me up at night. And I think I'm, I'm hard on myself, as we all are, you know, to try to do the right thing. And I think we do the best that we can in that moment. Some um, wise man just recently said to me about our relations with our parents. You know, do you think that your parents could have done a better job? And I thought, well, of course they could have. And he said to me, well, no, they did what they did, right? They did what they did. And that's all they could do. And, it, you know, it took me a while to sit upon that statement. And I realized... It's so true, right? We all just do what we do. And I suppose we can have you know, a cerebral conversation about how we could have done it differently, how we could have done it better, but that's where we were in our, in our lives at that point, and we did what we did, you know, and then we just move forward, and now we do what we do. And I don't know if that <laughs> makes any sense right now. It didn't to me at first, um, but now it does. It feels like a release. It does, exactly, exactly. It does. It feels like a forgiveness, right? So you mm -hmm. forgive yourself, basically, for just doing what you did. <laughs> but you can also, it's also a way to forgive other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I found that to be, uh, to be a helpful thought to sort of you know, fall back on. 
But when I feel like I could have done something differently, I, that's what will keep me up at night. But I'm, I'm working on that because sleep is so important. <laughs> As we now know. Right. What advice would you give to your 20-something self? Oh. Don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, how cliche is that? But yes, I, I think when we're in our 20s, we think everything is monumental and everything has, is going to have this huge impact on our future. And we just know that's not true. I remember thinking about, you know, even every exam seemed to like take on this, you know, Herculean like task of sorts. And I say to my daughter who's in high school now, you know, it's just one test of many you'll, you'll take. And it's one project of many you'll have to do. And it's, you know, you just, just know that every... Every task, every interaction, every event is a learning opportunity, and you learn from it and you grow, and that's how you grow into your 40s like I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you sort of, you bring that with you, and it's, you know, and it's hard to say to 20-somethings, you know, but I would say it to myself, and I probably wouldn't have believed myself, <laughs> because you, you really don't see it until you're older. You don't sort of see the wisdom that you've accumulated, and you don't appreciate it, I should say, until mm -hmm. you've gotten older. Um, but I wish I could have told my 20-something self that, you know, one day you'll wake up and you'll understand a whole lot more about your world and it'll give you insight and perspective that you don't have now. Um, like I said, I wouldn't have believed myself, but I would tell myself that. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. This was lovely. Thank you.